you know, what I want to know is, is how, how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. One bit of advice that Elizabeth's mother had given me that weekend we went to New Orleans was... When in doubt, make a pros and cons list. And I had actually done that in order to decide on whether selling that house or not. Well, now I was at a crossroads in my landscape business about how much to work and how to reel it in and get more efficient. And so I started making a pros and cons list. I mean, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. And what a simple idea. I'd never thought of that. I always tried to complicate everything. But I started making a pros and cons list about my client list and all these people I'd worked for for all these years. And I'd never gone up on prices. And I... I kept, you know, expanding and I would hire people and grow and, but, you know, you never really move that much forward. It's one of those things, whether you have to, you either grow really, really big or you stay very, very small. And I had met this woman down at St. Simon's Island at one of the women in recovery conferences that I continue going to every single year. It was always Memorial Weekend, and I had met this these two women that were down there, and they were golfers and good friends, and Jackie and Ann were their names, and they were both married to men, and uh, but Ann befriended me and actually hired me after we got back to Atlanta to come over and prune at her house, and I took Lisa Labolita with me, and it was a while back, and we had done some pruning, and and one day she approached me and said, why don't you let me come work with you? And I'm like, no. And, you know, she's married and her husband makes a shitload of money and she plays tennis. I mean, she's got the life of Riley. Why would she want to go work with me? And she said, I can do it. You know, I grew up on a farm. I know how to work. And she was a sharp woman. I really liked her. She kind of looked like Susan Sarandon and she was funny and sarcastic and I liked her style, and I thought, oh, you know, and, but she had, had been, you know, kind of stayed in touch with me, and so when I started doing this pros and cons list about eliminating some of these uh, accounts, I sent out a letter to 
all of the people that I worked for. And it was a price increase. And so most, I would say 95% stayed with me and were like, no problem. You deserve it. It's fine. And what was interesting with the richest of the rich were the ones that were like, we can't do this. <laughs> we can't go with this price increase. And I remember this one lady just mean as a snake. She was just a racist, mean ass woman. And she was sickening sweet to my face. And I remember going in her house one time and and uh, she had the plastic runners going through the carpet and everything was so perfect. And she had this African-American woman that worked for her named Martine, who was just very kind. And I felt so bad for Martine having to work for her because I worked for her and I knew how bad it was for me. But I had worked for her for, you know, four, 13, 14 years. She would, you know, I remember one time she called me on a Saturday morning and told me about a weed that was in her back courtyard. And, you know, pigweeds grow like in two days. And when, when we would leave a property, it was weed free. It was clean. And I would inspect it. And I knew it. Well, you know, she called me up one Saturday morning and was like, Jill, we, we're having a dinner party tonight. And there's one of those old pigweeds out of my azaleas. And I need you to come over here and get it. And I fucking drove from Alpharetta down to East Cobb and pulled that weed. But before I, before she took me in the house and took me and showed me where they would have the dinner and then where they were going to sit and have the coffee and dessert. And they were the entertaining the Woodruffs, the Coca-Cola people, right? I don't care. But I did go pull the weed, and I thought, you know, I'm not a fucking doctor on call with a beeper on Saturday, but I'm acting like one showing up pulling her weed. Well, anyway, when I had, you know, given the letter to her about the price increase, I had charged them, I think it was like 45 bucks a week to take care of everything. I mean, everything. And I went up to $67.50. I'll never forget. After all those years, and she called me on the phone one night. She said, we've discussed this, her and her husband, Jimmy, and Jill, this is just highway robbery, highway robbery. And they dropped me. And, you know, I have to admit, there's a part of yourself that's like, oh, God, oh, no. Okay, well, uh, let's negotiate. And then I went, no. And I didn't. I was like, let it go. You don't need them. It's such a fucking headache. So I was able to eliminate some of these accounts that were just, they weren't really profit making. They were just fillers. And so by doing that, it freed up a little more time. And then this lady, Ann, started working with me and you know, the first day I just made it real hard because I thought, you know, I just need to know if she's going to be able to do this. And I was laying side and it was hot. Oh, God, it was like, you know, a hundred and something. And they had like smog alerts and the heat index warning in Atlanta. Basically, they were saying, don't be outside. 
well, I had all this sod, this zoysia sod that had been delivered and had already graded out the whole front yard. It was a huge, huge, like 8,000 square foot front yard. So Anne shows up and I'm thinking, you know, this will kill her and she'll never come back and work with me. But she did. She worked that day. And I remember that night I followed her down to her car. She had this little Acura white sports car and she got in and I handed her two Advil gel caps and I said, you might want to freebase these with some hot coffee on your drive home just so you can get out of your car. And we were like laughing about it. And I said, really and truly, you don't have to come back tomorrow. I understand. And by God, she was there that next morning before me. And so it was like having somebody work with me instead of for me. And it was such a relief, you know, and and it, there was it just took the pressure off. And, you know, the people who had been working, I'd eliminated because, like I said, it was a pain in the ass to have a payroll service and workers comp and insurance and all this stuff that you're paying for. And you're not gaining any, you're not gaining any ground. And so by eliminating all that and cutting back on the work, had a little more freedom and it was just a little more enjoyable. And so I kept working, but I had, had whittled my work day, my work week down and I started taking Mondays off. And so Elizabeth would go out and she was a real early person and she'd get up and, you know, do what computer, whatever. I don't even know what she did. And she might have to go meet some breakfast meeting. She always had breakfast meetings so she could get them over with. And I remember her coming home in the mornings and I would still be in bed and she would come in and like laugh and we would lay there and talk and she'd bring me coffee. And it was just this, this really special time. It was like, it was like kind of like taking your shoulder, your shoulders out of your ears, you know, like when, when you walk around like a big Ben clock wound up all the time and then to like have that kind of like relief and so her house was, it was a, a new construction and it wasn't huge. It was like a two story and kind of postage stamp yard. And I had all that landscape equipment and I kept everything in the garage. And so I would just like, you know, take care of all the neighbors around her house. I would just, cause I, I had that big ass mower. So I thought, well, shoot, I might as well just do these yards too. Cause they were all connected and I kind of got to know the neighbors on both sides. And it was kind of funny because I just go ahead and do all of it because I was so used to doing all that stuff. I was so used to working and I built a pond off of her back patio and this real pretty little Japanese maple. And we put a spotlight and it was really nice. And we'd have we had a little table right there and we would have dinner and candles and have the little water feature going and the, the lighting and it was it was nice and it was like this home life that I had wanted and I remember one night pulling into the driveway and she was in the kitchen I could see her through the this window and she didn't know that I'd pulled up and I was watching her and I could hear music she was playing music real loud and I think it was like Erica Baidu or something and and she was making this uh scallop blackened scallop Caesar salad and I remember she was dancing and she was doing the scallops in the pan and 
But I watched her through the window and I just saw like this joy. And I thought, you know, there's a person in my life who who does have joy, who does appreciate simplicity. And, you know, she had her own demons and she had her own stuff. But I could see glimpses of a person that was walking through life unafraid to be herself and not be all inhibited. And, you know, she danced and she was, she, you could just see her be happy. And I remember just that memory burning in my mind of watching her and the two little dogs were running around and I'll never forget going in and just having this sense of God, you know, I have like a, a home life now. And it was like, they were like my family and we, you know, we repainted the kitchen and we painted it this like, I put this texture on it and did this kind of Chinese red color. And it was really cool. And she wasn't afraid of color. She's like, yeah, let's do it. You know, she wasn't afraid of color. And and we did this den, like this rich chocolate brown with this Benjamin Moore white trim. And it was when colors were in, you know, real in. And, and um, it was just a time. And, you know, holidays, she got excited about things. She did Christmas cards like she things excited her. And I was just from such a a depressive uh, numbness. It wasn't like I lived in this total dark, depressed place. It wasn't that at all. But I had become very solemn around things like holidays because I knew that holidays and special occasions usually brought on a lot of or triggered a lot of emotion and I didn't want to feel all that and so I would just sort of skim through those holidays or let's just get through it it was all about getting through it wasn't about enjoying those moments and just being and I remember it was around Thanksgiving and my brother was going to have Thanksgiving at his house and so I called and and his wife answered and I said, well, I just wanted to check and see uh, if it's OK that I bring Elizabeth with me the Thanksgiving. And she got real quiet on the phone and she said, you know, Jill, it's not OK. And I said, what? And she goes, it's not OK, Jill. My children are young and I don't want that around my children. And my heart just dropped. And I thought, she's serious. What? Doesn't You don't want what around your children? I mean, does she think we're like pedophiles or what? And I said, okay, well, thank you for your honesty. And I hung up. And I had already bought those my niece and nephew a lot of Christmas presents. And, oh, my God. You know, it really, really did a number on me. I really, that hurt me deeply. And my brother didn't have the nerve to stand up or to say anything. I guess he was going along with it. I don't really know. and I don't really care anymore. But at that time, it hurt because Elizabeth was one of the most open and loving people. Now, my mom loved her. My mother and my sister really embraced her. And that was the first time that they had really taken to a love mate. 
Now, maybe because Elizabeth showered my mother in gifts, I don't know, that might have had something to do with it, but but they were kind of in my corner on this one. Because, come on, we're like getting to almost, we're at the end of 1999 almost, and it's like, get over it. But... We ended up changing our plans those holidays and, and going down to Mississippi where Elizabeth's mother had bought this huge 400-acre uh, place. And it was like a retreat. And there was an old hunting lodge that she'd redone. And so we went down there and took the dogs and rode four-wheelers. And it was pretty cool. It was I'd never been to Mississippi. And I just had a kind of a, I was kind of scared of Mississippi because of the racism and all the stories you hear, but this was actually a pretty neat place, and there were the cypresses and the the lakes and swamps, and so we just, you know, we had this time, and I met her family, and they were pretty conservative, but, you know, her mom wasn't that conservative. Her mother was very open, but, you know, I really had to fight the depression because what would happen around times like this, especially if I would go to someone else's family, is that I start getting depressed about my own family. And as hard as I would try, as hard as I would try to convince myself, it would come into me. And then I would be like the sad sack. And poor Elizabeth's like, are you okay? And, you know, then she'd start you know, trying to caretake and make sure I'm okay. And I'm like, God, Jill, quit being such a fucking baby. But I couldn't control it. There was this part that I just could not get over. And so, of course, you know, dysfunction starts creeping into our relationship. And, you know, the passive-aggressive and all the demons that come into the relationship, here they come again, and I'm just fighting it tooth and nail. Like, no, 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 Jill, don't fuck this up. Because I always felt like it was my fault. I always felt like I was the one that would allow my darkness to come and override what was good. Well... We continued on our little journey, and one day my sister called and told me that my mother was really talking about getting a dog. And I was like, what? And we had had a little peekapoo growing up, and we had this little peekapoo for about nine months, and my mother got it, and I was about in the eighth grade, but it was the first dog that we ever had, just a precious little dog named Strutty. And we couldn't believe that we got a dog. And my mom came home with this little dog. And she had a little puppy playpen with a little newspaper. And we were so scared that my daddy was going to say we couldn't keep him. And we all waited for my dad to come home. And we were just so scared. This little dog was the cutest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. He was kind of like blondish tan color with a little black face, just precious, kind of like that little smash face. And he was sitting in that little pen and we saw my daddy's car pull up and I was petrified because I thought he's going to come in and say, I ain't going to have no dog in the house. 
you know, because they grew up like no animals in the house. And we'd had little outside cats and stuff growing up, but we'd never had an animal in our house. Well, my mother was kind of like, I'm putting my foot down on this one. And so we were just waiting. And I'll never forget him coming through that door. And he kind of looked down at that little puppy playpen. And Strutty was just sitting there looking at him, you know. And, and my daddy kind of walked by and he goes, hey, monkey face. And then walked on down the hall. And we sort of laughed. And we were like, oh, was that like an okay thing or what? And he didn't make us get rid of the dog. He was like, okay. You know, he thought he was cute, I think. And we would catch Daddy like talking to him when nobody was around, which was kind of funny. But the tragedy of that was that uh, my mother and sister had gone to the mall one night to go look for bedspreads. And I'd gone over to a friend's to babysit with my friend and when my mom and sister came home in the car, they came down our driveway and we had a weird driveway that had sort of a hump in it. And they came down the driveway and kind of went over that hump. And when they did, my mom said she felt something hit the car and daddy had let the little dog strutty out to go to the restroom and without a leash. And my mom hit him accidentally and he died within like five minutes or so. And so my mother and sister came to get me. And this was the first death that we had had in our family. This was before my neighbor and before my grandmother. And it was one of the hardest things I'd ever gone through in my entire life at that point. But my mother, so, had never really gotten another dog, you know. I mean, she had a few, maybe another one here, here or there. But, so here it is, you know, 1999, and she's thinking she wants a peek-a-poo. So my sister tells me this, and by then, my mother and my sister were living in Monroe, North Carolina, right outside of Charlotte. Well, I scoured through the Atlanta paper, and I'm looking for a peekapoo. And I said, well, I'm going to see if I can find one. And I, I found in the Atlanta paper, there's like one peekapoo in the whole city of Atlanta. And it was in LaGrange, Georgia. So I asked my friend Ann, who had been working with me, I said, do you want to go with me down to look at this peekapoo? And she's like, sure. So we drive down. It was over an hour drive. And we pull up to this sort of white farmhouse-looking place, kind of old-fashioned-looking. It had a big old pecan tree in the front yard, and you know, it was kind of it was kind of cold. It was winterish, and we get out and we go to the door, and this woman comes to the door, and she was real short and sort of waddled. She reminded me of Danny DeVito as the penguin in that movie Batman. And she had these real thick glasses, and she goes, come on in. And we were like, what? And she said, come on in. And we got in the house, and it was kind of like a hoarding situation. You know, there was a lot of boxes and a lot of stuff and kind of scary. And so she said, just come on with me through the house. And we walked through the house, and I remember glancing into this dining room, and there was a like a big dining table with this like eyelet sort of looking tablecloth. And there was a, a cake, like a cake dish, a glass 
cake dish with a cake, and there were crumbs all over the table, and it was odd. And we just kind of followed her, and we got to the back porch, and and she said, go on down there. He's down there on the left. And so we walked out into this backyard, and it was fully fenced in. Well, along the fences were these, like, plywood-type, they almost looked like chicken coops, but they were, like, dogs were in them, and they were small dogs. Now, I had no idea what a puppy mill was or meant. I didn't even know that terminology at this point. And I kind of looked around, and I thought, well, there's, like, Dotsons and... Maltese and Yorkies and Poodles. There are all these little small dogs. And Anne and I start walking down through this muddy backyard and this whole fence line in a rectangle was nothing but these weird doghouse looking pens and dogs were yipping and yapping and screaming and yelling and oh my God. And we get down there, and the lady kept yelling from the back porch, Go on, she's back there in the corner. She was black Pekingese. Just climb over that fence. We get down to this one corner on the far left corner. And there was this jet black Pekingese. And she had a little tan diamond on her chest. And she was like, woof, woof. And she was kind of mean, you know, and, and the lady was screaming at me to cross and climb over the fence. And I didn't see any kind of puppy or anything. And my friend Anne is cracking up and we were laughing like, what in the world? Well, I climb over and that little Pekingese sort of starts, it didn't really nip at me, but I could tell that she was not real happy that I was in her territory. Well, I turned around and I look at this plywood little house with this little cutout opening and these two little paws come up over the little entrance and they were like the size of my fingers tiny tiny little thing and this little tiny dog black and white half of its face was white and half of its face was black and it pulled itself up and looked at me, and its tail was about an inch and a half long. I mean, this was one of the tiniest. It really looked like a guinea pig. It didn't even look like a dog or a, a puppy. It was so small. And Anne said, are you sure that dog is, like, old enough? And I said, I don't know. And it really, really seemed too young and too small. Well, I went over and I picked it up, and the, the poor Pekingese mother was just going crazy. And I felt horrible, And I but I went ahead and I put it, I held it close to my chest, and I climbed back over the fence, and the lady's yelling, come on back up here. And then she pointed and said, that there's the daddy. And we looked, and there was this white poodle who was just covered in mud. It was like a small white miniature poodle and it's just jumping and screaming on its back legs and yipping and we were like oh my god let's get out of here so we get it back up to the house and you know she's like that's two hundred dollars cash and I gave her two hundred bucks and I said well, 
said, he, I said, are you sure that this dog is, is old enough for me to take? His birthday's October 23rd. I'll never forget. His birthday's October 23rd, and now we're like in November or whatever. I don't remember. Maybe we were even in December. But um, we, we got this little dog, and before we left, you know, the lady goes, let me take, send some stuff with y'all. And she sent us these like big jars of some kind of, she called it Brunswick stew. And it was like really grossing me out. And we drove and Ann was laughing. We were laughing so hard. This is, I said, it's just another escapade to add to the collection. And we laughed and she held this little dog and when I got home with the little dog that evening, Elizabeth was laughing and she said, I think we should name him David. And I said, David? And she goes, yeah, yeah, let's let's call him David. And I said, yeah, but my mother, you know she's not going to call him David. And we had a good laugh. But I tell you, Burr Haney was very upset. Him and Henry were not happy about having this new little baby puppy in the house. And we were only going to keep it there until I could drive up to Charlotte and give it to my mom as a surprise. Well, before we did that, we went ahead and took this little puppy to the vet. And the vet laid him back and said, you know, this is not a good situation. I said, why? And he goes, watch this. And when he laid this little dog on his back, this little dog's teeth would show like a piranha. He said, this little dog's not submissive at all. He said, he's way too young to be taken from its mother. And so he kind of gave us this lecture. And I didn't know, I really didn't know that much about, about, you know, puppy etiquette at that point or puppy mills. But, you know, poor little thing had fleas. So we got all the little things that, that we could get before it wasn't even old enough to get rabies or anything like that. But got it cleaned and and fixed and all that and poor little thing it was just a sweet little dog and I drove to Charlotte and to Monroe and we I surprised my mother and um she was very excited and my little niece was there and everybody cried and you know when you have a trauma like that had happened with our little dog that time, you know, stuff like that doesn't go away. And I think, you know, it really struck a chord with my mother that day, but gave her this little dog and she named him Oreo, got rid of David immediately. But so anyway, you know, time went on and Elizabeth and I started having trouble and she got a job offer out in Colorado and so she goes, you want to fly out to Colorado? And I'm like, yeah. And I'd never been to Colorado. And so we went to Denver and she had an interview with this company, Cisco, and which was a pretty big company. And I really liked Denver, man. I really liked it. And so, you know, I really wanted to get out of Atlanta and so did she because the traffic situation was absurd it's not an exaggeration. I mean, you can sit in traffic easily two hours. That's nothing. I sat in traffic two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening for years. I mean, that was a given. But when it started turning into three hours and one night four hours, it was, it was starting to get scary. 
And so we had sort of been talking about it, but not really being serious about it. Well, we flew out to Denver and stayed in this really killer B&B, air, uh, you know, bed and breakfast. Airbnb wasn't there yet, but we... We went around and we were looking at different areas. And so she had talked with her mom back and forth and they offered her this job and it was going to be a lateral move. It wasn't going to be a huge uh, move in, in salary, but her mom offered to move us there, which was very kind. And so if she, if she wanted to take the job, and so we started looking for houses. We went ahead and called a realtor and we, we started looking for houses and we found this house in this area called, I think it was called Sloan Lake or something like that. And it, they said it was an up and coming area, kind of like if you're willing to be an urban pioneer, then you could, you know, get a decent price on a house and redo it and all that. And my dream, of course, was to have my shop. And so in that little community, there were some spaces and we walked around. And so we actually put some earnest money down on a house. And we were working with this woman realtor, this gay woman. And because we wanted to be somewhere that was gay friendly. You were sick of this like fucking at Georgia rednecky, you know, and, and I had gone to see Gloria Steinem. Uh, maybe a year before at a bookstore and she had written a book and was there doing a book signing and did a lecture and I actually talked to her and I asked her some questions about you know how do you take a stand in your community um, when everybody is either homophobe or racist or I mean how do you do that and you know I remember her looking at me and saying to me you have to choose your battles and sometimes you got to move she says sometimes you just got to move where your tribe is and I'll never forget that because it was like you know I've been in these places where I was living and being who I was but still hiding and still being ashamed and, and I'm not like hanging the rainbow flag off my fucking porch or, or that. I'm not a militant marcher. I just wanted to live my life and be free and not feel threatened. So this place in Denver was sort of a, a gay community and, you know, it was an up and coming area. So we decided, you know, let's just go for it. And we put earnest money down on this house and flew back to Atlanta and, had really started thinking about this. And so I can't really remember, but Elizabeth and I got in a very big argument. And I was, we were supposed to go up to her mountain house in Black Mountain. And she said, why don't you just go? And my mother and my sister were going to meet us there. And she says, I'm not going to go. You go. You just go by yourself. I said, okay. So I went up to Black Mountain and I met my mom and my sister and the dogs and we were there and I went walking around Black Mountain again with my mom and my sister. And I said, you know, this place is, there's something to it. I can't describe it, but there's something that just is just pulling me. And there's something about the West that's very masculine. There's something about the openness and the mountains, and it's very majestic, and it's very powerful. 
So I was very drawn to that. But then when I got into Black Mountain and I got into this Western North Carolina area, it was like these mountains were more of the feminine nature. It was like moss and growth and greenery and lush. And it's like encapsulates you. And it's like giving you this big hug. And I just felt like it was just pulling me in. And I thought, oh God, here we go with all your esoteric stuff. But I could not make it go away. And we walked around Black Mountain and we kept kind of walking around and we walked by this one building and it was just adorable, this kind of golden brick color and it was two-story and and there was like construction or something going on inside of there. And I walked in and there were men working and I said, is this, is this place, uh, what is this place? And they go, oh, it's just a, uh, it's a vacant space and I think they're going to rent it. You know, we're just doing the uh, remodeling here and doing a little bit of sheetrock, blah, 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 you know. And I said, if I wanted to inquire about it, how would I find out? Is there a phone number? He goes, oh, well, all you got to do is walk down the street and go to that realty company. And this was on a Saturday. So we walked back down the street and there was a woman from Scotland. Mary, I'll never forget her, but she was a Scottish woman, and she was behind a desk, and and I said, I wanted to ask about that building, and she said, oh, it's um, it's going to be leased for commercial space, and I said, well, how much, do you know how much they're going to rent it for, and she said, yeah, six seventy five a month, and I was like, oh my God, like that's a steal, Six seventy-five a month? Are you kidding? I mean, coming from Atlanta, that was like highway robbery. And I'm like, and my heart just started pounding out of my chest. And out of my mouth said, I want it. I want it. I want to rent it. I want to lease it. I want to write you a check right now. And she says, seriously? And I said, yeah. And I have no idea where this came from. It was like, once again, I stepped into this other dimension in time, and I just made this decision. I wrote her the check, and then I said, I'm going to need a house. Next thing I know, we're in a car looking at houses. I found a house down the street, and I put a contract on this house. Well, when I went home after that weekend, I had to go tell Elizabeth what I had done. And she was like, are you fucking crazy? And I said, I don't know, maybe. I said, but if I don't move there, I feel like I'm going to die. That's how intense this draw is. I'm sorry, but I can't move to Denver with you. And she was just like, oh, no. And well, I'm not going there without you. And I said, I just, I don't know what it is, Elizabeth. I don't know what it is, but I have to go there. She's like, Black Mountain? How can you make a list? I said, I'm going to have a shop. Well, she was getting ready to go back to school to get her master's, of course, while she's working. Because she's a multitasker. She can do that. I mean, she can study. She's smart. Well, some days go by and... It just was not good. And so in the meantime, she'd done a little research 
And lo and behold, there was a master's program through Western Carolina at UNC Asheville. She calls me up and says, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? She says they offer the master's because she was going into some kind of program that was only offered at certain schools like Georgia Tech. I mean, it was I can't even remember what it was called, but it was some weird master's degree in organizational psychology or something like that. And she said, I'm not believing this, but they, they offer it there. So we took another trip up, and in this house that I'd chosen was an old, late 1800s that needed a lot of work. And she walked right in there and said, no fucking way. You're not doing this. If you're going to come here and open a shop, then you need to focus on the shop, and you don't need to be coming home to some house to renovate. And she was right. She was 100% right on that. So I canceled that out, and then we ended up finding a house. It was a brand new house on an acre, and the house had been built around the beams of an old barn. So they had these two artists from Pennsylvania had moved down, and they bought the land, and they tore the barn down, but they left the beams and the support, and they built this new house around it, and it was pretty interesting, and it was a these two people wanted to move back to Pennsylvania. So we were staying in a hotel and worked with a realtor. And finally, I said, all right, I'm just going to call and make this offer. And I know it's crazy. And they'll probably say no, but I'm just going to make this offer. So I called and I said, all right, this is what we're offering. And the the Scottish lady was like, okay, but I doubt that that's going to, you know, I'll do it. But she was almost sort of embarrassed. It was really absurd. But Anyway, she calls back and she says, are you sitting down? I said, no, but I will. She says, they took the offer. And we were floored. We could not believe it that we were getting this brand new house for this. And so made the decisions. We finally got it all together and we would be moving. And the move was going to happen in the year 2000. So the day of the closing, we went to the law firm, and we also were going to do some legal papers, and this was Elizabeth's idea. Well, therapy lady had told me many, many, many years ago, way back, that a person will tell you in between the lines certain things, certain clues. A lot of times when a person's projecting onto you, it's usually their own truth, and so We were sitting in this law firm and then kind of this conservative lawyer in Asheville. And I could tell he wasn't too keen on the gay thing. And he didn't want want us to talk about that. But she was saying, well, we're doing this because it's not even, it's not like a prenup. But we were making some agreements and we were sitting there and she turns to me and says, well, we're doing all this in case you ever cheat on me. And it just kind of struck me like, what? In case I cheat on you. And it it went into my gut like, ooh. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And so we're sitting there and we go through these legal papers and it's all said and done. And we leave and we didn't really know the territory. And we were looking for a place to go to dinner. And so we ended up at Carrabba's and we're sitting there. 
And I was facing her, and we're looking at the menu. And the server, I see this young lady coming toward us, the server, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I will never forget. It was like somebody took a torched arrow and shot it right through my solar plexus. It went so far into me. And I look down at my plate and I'm thinking, are you kidding, Jill Haney? What are you doing? When these things happen in life, I really don't understand. I can't fathom where this kind of thing comes from. But this person approached the table and she said, can I start you out with a glass of wine? Well, Elizabeth smiling and she says, oh, we don't drink. You know, she was very, Elizabeth was very outgoing and she liked people and she was real friendly. And the the server says, oh, okay. And, and she says, uh, well, I'll get y'all water or whatever. She, and then she looks over at Elizabeth and she looks at me and she says, are y'all friends of Bill? And we kind of looked at each other. And that's code language for Bill Wilson, who is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so if you're out in the world and somebody doesn't drink and you feel comfortable enough to ask them, are you a friend of Bill's? Usually that means I'm in AA, we're in AA, oh, we're all in AA. So Elizabeth goes, yes, yes, oh my God. And so they strike up a conversation and I just keep looking down at my plate because I'm having this like, I'm breaking out a sweat by now. And she would glance over at me and it was like she was looking right into me. And then I thought, oh, I'm just making this up. This is not happening. I'm just a weirdo, whatever. And she was very young. And so we went ahead and ordered our dinner and we sat and we sort of, I guess we were there to celebrate the closing on this house and that we would be moving on January 1st to Asheville, North Carolina from Atlanta. This was a big deal. This was the beginning of a whole nother life. I was leaving my home. I was leaving all that trauma and drama and all that stuff that I had spent years just ripping and snorting and running and good God Almighty, finally leaving it behind for a whole new life. Little did I know, 21 years later, that I would be building a stone wall for that server from Carabas. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. 
You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates. Thank you.